Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher, where we discuss everything that brings us life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Our Lives with Shannon Fisher. This is your host, Shannon Fisher. And we've got someone today that you are going to love, a longtime friend of mine. Her name is Lois Bromfeld. She is a comedian who has had a long career in Hollywood, and she has written a memoir, My Dirty Life in Comedy. And we're here to talk to her uh, about the book and to find out the inside scoop on those stories. Lois, welcome. Hi, honey. (laughs) Hi, honey. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? God, you're so I'm far away. It's well. weird. So good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's great to be here. Be here. It's great to be there. Where am I? You know what I mean. <laughs> I do. So you have, <laughs> had, yeah. you have had a long and storied career in, in, as oh, a God, comedian, yeah. as a writer, uh, in different countries, different phases of life. So tell me, how <laughs> did you initially decide to get into a career in comedy? I don't know. I just, just my whole, my whole family did it. So I just did the same thing they did. You know, we just all followed the same path. So you're funny and, uh, uh, that's just what you do. Go to, I mean, I just happened, you know, it's just something I was able to do. It's talent. You know, yeah. you just have talent and you do it. So I, I right. guess that's the reason. I don't know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You, when you find out I, what you're good at in life, you follow that path and it, it takes you wherever, wherever it leads you. So what made you decide to chronicle? Yeah, that's what right. made you decide to, to chronicle your career? By the way, the book is available on Amazon. You should really get it. Have you read it? You have to read it. I have it. read have, it. I have read what it. What did you think? I mean, I thought it's it was crazy. wonderful. Crazy I mean, it is. And some of the good. stories I've heard from, from knowing you for so long, but some of them, uh, yeah. like, story about Warren Beatty. I mean, that absolutely oh, just had me in stitches. I mean, your your experiences and the <laughs> way you tell them are hilarious. So for, for the audience who's listening, give us a little snippet about the, the Warren Beatty episode. Oh, God. Warren Beatty, I mean, Warren Beatty was in his heyday. So he was in the 80s and he was still a good looking man. And he was like, I was in his 40s or something, early 40s. But he was notorious for for uh, following, you know, picking up, trying to pick up gay women. He loved gay women because he'd already fucked everybody else. So he only had gay women to turn to. Sorry, I said fuck. But um, so uh, a friend of mine, we were uh, shopping in Beverly Hills somewhere. We were just going into stores. I couldn't afford anything, but we were shopping and trying clothes on. And then we saw him and he was walking around in a trench coat and a hat and glasses, the Hollywood <laughs> costume that people wear. And then we, the, the clerks who worked at the store were like, fawning all over him and then we saw him and he came up to me and he said hi do you know who I am and I was like Dick Tracy I don't know who are you because he looked ridiculous and then he said I'm Warren Beatty and I said hello and my friend almost fainted because she couldn't believe she was seeing him in the store and then we uh then we left and we had a conversation with him it was very brief then we left and he followed us and then she gave him my phone number he wanted my phone number she gave him my phone number and he called me and then the story goes from there but you have to read the book to find out what happened because it was just to this day, I say to my partner, when we watch, when we see something, a movie by Warren Beatty, I say, I wonder what would have happened if I, if I'd hooked up with him. I wonder if I would have been in his movie or just another person he had, he had wanted to sleep with because he was, he was gorgeous, but I was gay. And yeah. I said to him, I'm gay. And he said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It matters to me. <laughs> it matters to me because I don't want to have sex with you. It doesn't matter. What does that mean? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're not interested in me at all. We could still sleep together. What? So it made no sense, but yeah, he, my experience with him was I never forgot it, and I did it on stage at the comedy store, and people loved it. It was just, it was ridiculous. Then I realized a lot of women had that same experience because he was a big womanizer, and yeah. uh, he was just, 
he was but you know what honestly <clears throat> we had I had lunch with him that one well, you'll see in the book I had lunch with him <clears throat> and you know what he said he was so honest he said I had, he said I slept with everybody to get ahead mm-hmm. I had to this is how you got ahead in Hollywood when I was trying to make it I was good looking and I slept with everyone and it worked it worked <laughs> I loved him yeah. for that because it was just dead honest you know and he figured I used my looks and it worked that's how I right. made my career well, in a, a career, in a field where what what you look like matters more than anything else, you got to use what yeah, you got, that's right? right? And you yeah, talk yeah. about you're you're gay, and you talk about kind of having to try to rely on the fact that you are a beautiful young woman pretending to be straight while you are oh God, delivering yeah. your comedy routine. So how did that how did that feel? Trying to trying to be straight was everybody's problem who was gay. I mean, nobody was doing it. I mean, Stevie Moore was the first person that I ever saw do stand-up and just talk about being gay straight out. Yeah. I mean, he was so brave. So for me, I just couldn't do it because my agent would say to me, you can't get a job if you say you're a lesbian. You're just not going to get work. So don't do it. Don't say you're gay on stage. Don't talk about it. And (laughs) so I'd get up on stage and talk about you know, buying shoes. And I was just like, why am I talking? Who cares buying shoes or or my boyfriend, and I knew nothing about men. That was the best part. I'd never even seen a penis, and I was talking about how I was dating men and having this, like, relationships, and I had no clue. I'd have to ask my friends, what, what, what is this? What do, what do guys do? What do we do? Like, what's, what's heterosexual sex? Yeah. And they would laugh and tell me. <laughs> then I'd go on stage and tell a story that made the people would be like, huh? Because I didn't know what I was talking about. And then they thought I was just doing it to get laughs. They figured, oh, she's just doing it. She couldn't possibly not know. She must be just doing it to get laughs, but it was getting laughs. But yeah, I didn't have a clue about sex with men. And then I never had really had sex with a man. Like like once I took a bath with a guy in New York and he got a boner and I scared the hell out of me. I jumped out of the bathtub and ran. I was like, I was scared. And I was really naive. Yeah, but you did, you did get married. <clears throat> speaking of Steve Moore, um, in, in yeah, a, I got in married a, in a strange circumstance. <laughs> so tell a little bit about how yeah. how that marriage kind of came to be and where it took you. Well, this marriage was a lavender marriage. I mean, this was a this was this started out as a, a deal that I made with a person who I uh, trusted, and then it turned into actually it turned into a relationship for so many years. That uh, we, I thought of him as my partner. It wasn't. It was no longer a fake marriage, even though it was a marriage of convenience. But it was not because I because he was just my my favorite person in the world. This was a guy who just would do anything. I never forget him saying to me at one point when I was really down on my luck. He said, "As long as I'm here, you always can come and stay with me. You can always be here. You don't have to worry." Like that kind of statement from anybody is incredible. And those yeah. people you never forget. And these are people who stay in your heart forever. And he was just one of those people that meant so much to me. And and he still does. I mean, I miss him. I can't believe it sometimes that he's gone. I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't grasp the idea that I don't. I won't hear his voice ever again. It kills me. But so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how people have endured these two years of COVID with losing people and not being able to say goodbye or not. I don't know how they've done it because I had years with Stevie and then I got to I really did get get to say goodbye the year that I went there. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, Steve was really everything to me. So I tell a story in my book about about him. I tell a couple of stories about him. In fact, there's a whole bunch about the road 
and uh, the things that we did together. Well, you read it, you know. So, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, he was a big part of my life. Yeah, he was important. Yeah. To me, so. Well, and now you find yourself in Germany. So you've been living in Germany with your partner for <laughs> several years now, which kind of takes you out yeah. so far from the realm of working the comedy clubs in New York and LA and writing for TV. Yeah. How have you found you, you've continued to work frequently while you're there in Germany? So tell me, yeah. how did you bring your career across the ocean into a brand new country? You know what? I was really lucky. And this is also I have wrote a new book about Germany. You have to, I'll have to send it to you and you have to read it. It's not I'm, I'm not ready, exactly ready yet, but it will be in a couple of couple of months. I'm trying to get a publisher and hopefully I'll get one. Um, but um Coming to Germany was I met my partner in New York, uh, in uh, New Jersey years ago. And that's, we've been together 14 years. So, um, but when I came to Germany, I thought, well, this is it. You know, there's no more stand up. I'm not going to do anything else anymore. I'm just going to come here and, and sort of basically retire and that'll be it. You know, I have a pension, so I'll be okay. And I have my partner and we have a place and that was it. And yeah. then I discovered, oh, forget it, Shannon. I discovered the club in Berlin, which is incredible, called the Quatch Comedy Club. And Quatch in German means, um, uh, nonsense. And um, and I discovered that in a club in Munich and clubs in, uh, forget it, comedy clubs galore. And then the best of all was going to London, the greatest comedy club I've ever played in in my entire life, aside from the comedy store. It's called the Top Secret Comedy Club, and it's just the most phenomenal comedy club. They're, they're, people are young, they're drunk, and they're smart, and they listen. And I, oh. I don't know how that combination works. They They love me like you would not believe. I went there the first time in 2017. They laughed so much, I, I couldn't even hear myself speaking. They were out of their minds. It was unbelievable. The British audiences were so good. So I discovered all of that, and that's kept me going. That's really kept me going. And and when I decided to start writing was when the pandemic hit. I thought, well, <laughs> I feel stuck, so I started writing. And and the writing, uh, yeah, the writing has been great here. Uh, we live in a little town outside of Nuremberg, and, and it's a really little town. It's like 12,000 people here. And there's yeah. no people, but it's a country. It's really country. People are really, really nice. Uh, our, our group of friends are incredible. They're just unbelievably nice people. And it's Germany. You know, the language is fucking impossible. I've been here 12 years. I can barely still speak German still. I'm like a, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard a language. You would believe it. It's so hard. But this has been my home now for a while, you know, so right. lucky me in a way. Yeah. And my partner's great. So lucky me. Absolutely. You never know yeah. where life is going to take you. You meet someone and your your world can change in an instant. 15 years ago, yeah. if someone yeah. had told you you'd be living in Germany, you probably would have laughed them out of the room. And yet here you are oh, yeah. living a, a full, happy life there. Yeah, it's pretty good. And the best, but the best part about it, this is, and I always forget this, I get homesick a lot and I think I want to go back and I want to see my friends and hear my language every day. And you start to miss the things like your language and, and even the food, even though the food in this part of the world is, is, is really better. You, you miss, you miss having a greasy hamburger. You miss having a, a rude waiter. Like you really do miss the American, Americanism, American way, which is super casual. And honestly, in this part of the world, Nothing is really casual. You know, the Italians are, but mostly people are fairly formal and fairly polite. And so when you, when you go somewhere, no, nobody says, what do you want in a restaurant? Nobody would do that. And in New York City, you, it's great. You go to a, a shitty diner. The guy doesn't even look at you. He takes your order. And then he brings you a fabulous sandwich. And you kind of go, it's, it, there's something about the culture that's so sloppy and so much fun. And here and in Germany and, and other parts of Europe, it's, not, it's just not like that. You know, yeah. it's different. It's very, there's lots of rules and people abide by them and, and not, and, and America's lawless and it's, I know it's always backfired in some ways, but if you just go there for a friendly visit, it's great. So 
yeah, I really miss a lot about the States. And uh, here, you know, like we went to uh, Anne's 60th birthday. We went to Paris for four days. And to be able to go to Paris just like that for four days is a, is a privilege, you know, to do that. So yeah. we went and we had incredible food and wine. And yeah, lucky me, you know, lucky us. This is nice. That, what a life. That is wonderful. Well, and in yeah. your book, you talk yeah. a lot about the, you talk a lot about the community uh, of comedy being on the road and also kind of being, you know, within the, the two main comedy clubs in Los Angeles uh, that you guys were all kind of a family. So tell me a little bit about kind of those relationships and what that family meant to you when you were there. Well, you know, that family never goes away either. That comedy family that you come up the ranks with, like uh, Mike Binder, who did the comedy special about the comedy store, and, and all these people who, who elevated themselves into a different level of their careers and made money and became known, even even Robin Williams, all the people that you felt like you, you felt like you started with them because they were just starting. And even yeah. though you never became that, you never got famous, it didn't matter. You still remember them as your family. They all felt like the same group. And <clears throat> even to this day, like when I talk to Polly Shore or I hear something that goes on with somebody or some com a comedian who died, it hits you because you think like Bob Saget just died. And you think, Bob Saget, first of all, I forgot that he was, you would think of him as a young man. I think of myself young. You think of yourself as in your 30s. You forget that these people are all getting older and that he just suddenly is gone. And he yeah. was one of the nicest men. Yeah, it's like a family member dying. That whole community felt like that. And I remember when you when I started out there and people were either supportive or they weren't. And the ones that weren't supportive were few. And the ones that were were great. And you come up that ranks with them and and then 30 years later, yeah, you never forget them. You don't forget it. It's always there the people who are supportive and the people who who write to you uh sometimes and say, "We just love you." Like I have people who write to me and still remember Sorority Girls from Hell, my video I did like 36 years ago, they remember it as if it was yesterday and they play it and they know the words and they, and these guys, one guy wrote to me one time and I'll never forget. It made me cry for like 20 minutes. He said, I just want you to know that my boyfriend is, I'm sitting in the hospital with my boyfriend and he's dying of AIDS. And, uh, and he, the one thing he wanted to, he wanted to be able to laugh for the last time. So he wanted to see sorority girls. <laughs> Fuck. I cried. <laughs> I was like, Anne's like, what's wrong with you? It was awful. But this is the kind of impact you make with a silly video. It meant a right. lot to me. So, yeah, my comedy years in California were huge and, and really just, this is who I, this is, this was a foundation of my entire career. So it was big. Yeah. 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 And, and you talk about sorority girls from hell. I mean, that was kind of one of the, things for which you are most known, especially in the gay community. And um, and, and reading yes, your book, I was shocked to know that the character of Irma was loosely based on a real person. Yeah, on a real person. It was loosely based on this girl from school, yeah, that was treated badly, yep, and that I, I buddied up with, but she was big. She was a really big girl. She wasn't like this little, you know, some kids get bullied, they're little and frail and they get treated badly. And, yeah. you know, 20 years later, they're the head of a company and you can't get a job there anymore. It's because they remember you. But this, this girl was a big girl and she kind of had a hunched back. Like she was, she was so big and she wore a sweater. She did exactly what I did in the video. She had that same kind of funny, that's where I got the idea from. And she would lumber down the hallway and she, but she was huge. She was bigger than me. She must have been six feet tall easily. And people teased her, but it was like the friendly giant, you know. And then I went to her house, and everybody was perfectly normal. <laughs> it was just weird. It's really true, yeah. It's, 
Yeah, it was really, I'll never forget that. It changed my perspective on judging people from, you, this is, makes you realize you can't judge people right away, even though you do it. It's natural. You do it all the time. But uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. Yeah, you never know. Totally normal. Yeah, you, nev you yeah. absolutely yeah. never know what is happening behind closed doors when, when you don't see someone, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, you, yeah, true. you managed to transition into a career in screenwriting, writing for sitcoms. Um, which you know right. seems to be the perfect extension of of stand up, but it's it's I mean it's something that a lot of people try to do, but uh, but very few can break into the industry. So so tell me a little bit about your your transition uh, into working for TV. Uh, television was uh, came at a time when <clears throat> I was um, I was not wasn't sick of doing stand up, but I didn't want to go on the road all the time. I hated going on the road, and <clears throat> so. Uh, Roseanne came along and of course she was, you know, she became almost instantly well known and, um, she got her show and we, we were friends and I remember just asking her straight out, I want to write on your show. Uh, and of course everybody was asking her that and then she said, okay, but you got to write, you got to write a script. So I just went and I went, I had a meeting with the head writer and he gave me a script to write and I had no clue. So I went and I t got a, bought a book on writing, how to write sitcoms and <clears throat> it was so hard. And I remember sitting there thinking, I can't do this. This is <clears throat> this is a huge departure from writing jokes. Yeah. And then I just learned it, you know. And I luckily I got a job as a staff writer, and then I was then I started my whole career as a writer in television. But it took years to learn it because you have to sit in a room and you have to learn structure and you have to learn how to write characters and and you have to learn everything about it. And there were so many people in the room at one point when I left the show in 1994, 1995. I was there for three four, almost four seasons. Mm -hmm. And when I left, she hired everybody. She hired like hired people she saw on the street to write like she just hired too many people so there was too many people and luckily so, I left then because my mother had died so right <clears throat> yeah now, what was that writer's yeah. room like like what was the vibe when you were oh, in God. there with that all that many people in the beginning in, in, in the beginning it was great because it was only like 10 of us and that was great and but you you're just sitting there you're literally sitting there all day writing thinking pitching uh, uh, sharing dirty stories and uh, uh, saying filthy stuff to each other. I mean, if you want to have sexual harassment, forgive you. If you feel sexually harassed, you might as well not get a job as a writer. Forget it. You can't survive it. So you, you, you know, dick jokes and fucking jokes and oh, forget it. We got it got so dirty. And the dirtiest person at the end of the year would get like five hundred bucks. I mean, you had so many games to play, <clears throat> and in between there somewhere we would write shows. We would actually we would actually start like we could start in the morning by doing saying filthy things for two hours and then somehow in there we'd find a, a sh we'd find a, a story mm -hmm. and then we'd pick it out and we'd start working it was just unbelievable process and then the, the when it, when the room got too full then it just got muddled because you had people pitching things that didn't know how to write and it was just it just got confusing and it got hard harder so sure. yeah it was a great experience but all the shows i wrote on were great i wrote on grace under fire that was a great experience i wrote on some pilots and lots of tv stuff and it was uh it was always really great. Uh, it's a great job. It's great money. It's a great when you get when I got my first paycheck, I almost fainted. I was like, "How am I making this money being an idiot for a, <laughs> for a week?" You know, and it was it's a fabulous job, and it still is. I mean, to write on a show now, and now it's got to even be better. You know, for to write a sitcom for Netflix or all these shows, oh, they have tons of shows you can write on now. I mean, Netflix right. opened up the door for for thousands of writers to get jobs. I would love to write, but now I'm 66, you know, I'm not going to get a job in a sitcom now. Can't be old and get a job. You can't, you can't do it in your 60s. I mean, in your 60s, you can create maybe something, but you can't work in a staff room because first of all, you want to go to bed at 10 
and then <laughs> and and if they're there till two in the morning and you're sleeping in your chair, you know, so right. who needs that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It really does. It it does seem that Hollywood is very very youth focused, youth centric. So when you did decide to to leave Hollywood. What was the factor to make you just put that behind you and and move back on to to comedy and greener passion? I don't know. I think I just I think it was uh, 2001. It was right after 9/11, and uh, it was really hard to get a job writing because there was so many reality shows, and it was hard to get staffed. And I didn't get staffed for two seasons. And I thought I was doing other work and I was still writing, but I wasn't getting staffed. So I thought I can't. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to be here anymore. Plus, my relationship broke up. So a whole bunch of stuff happened at the same time. And yeah. then, by some miracle, I got a job in Toronto, writing a, a producing a talk show, which I'd never done. And I took the chance to go because it was a chance to go, to go and still have a job. And yeah. I went to Toronto for a year, and it was great. I loved it. And they asked me to stay, and I said no. I wanted to go to New York, and that's when everything started to crumble because New York was so hard. New York yeah. was so hard. You have to. I mean, you have to have. $100,000 in the bank to deal with New York for a year. You do yeah. to start get on your feet. So it was really, really hard. But, yeah. um, but you know, the years in California, I mean, the years you realize there is, it is time to leave. And a lot of my friends are still there. And I don't know how they, I don't know how they're surviving, honestly, because uh, there's no work for somebody or in their 60s. You're not going to work on a show. So I don't know how they're making money. That's what it's I, like. But it's, everybody has a different journey. People probably thought, I wonder what, what happened to Lois. Well, she's living in Germany. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they do. But that, but you know what? I'm pretty I'm so on the I'm so out on the internet that they would it's easy to find out that I'm here. Some people ask me why I'm here. I said my partner and it's great living in Europe. Are you kidding? Yeah. Who doesn't want to live in Europe? This is ridiculous. And some people have an opinion about Germany. It's interesting. The people who have an opinion have never been here. They don't realize that uh, Germany is a really progressive country and uh, the U.S. is not. And so it's really, uh, uh, some people say things about living here that really flip me out. Like, how could you live in a country that did what they did? What do you mean? You're living in a country. <laughs> you did what you did. You lived in, you're living in a country with Donald Trump. So, you know, it's such a funny judgment to make, you know. It's really, I mean, I learned a lot from living in this part of the world, a lot. It's it's pretty great. It's pretty amazing. Tell me you've been, about you've the been to new... Europe, though. You've traveled in. I have, yeah. Yeah, well, tell me about the new book yeah. you're writing about being in Germany. Okay, the new book is called uh, An American Comedian Lost in Bavaria. This was a very short book because I'm trying to make a jump from, I want to write, uh, I'm going to write some short stories after this and then I'm going to write a novel. But I got to take steps to it because I've never done it before. So I'm making my steps slow. So this book about my, my biography was easy because it's about me and my life and it was easy to write. But sure. the, this book about Germany is a, a little hard. It was a little harder because it had to be funny and kind of short. And the next one is going to be... Um, uh, a series of short stories, fiction, which I've never written fiction, and then after that, a novel. So we're talking about the next five, four or five years of working. Yeah. You know, thank you. I got a glass of wine. Isn't that nice? I'm so lucky. I hope, I hope it's not poisoned. Is it poisoned? <laughs> I always think she's going to poison me. Dear Lord, oh, please Lugana, do not let you. Lois Bromfield die while on my radio show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that you have your show. How are you doing with your show? This is amazing. You've had this now for what, four, four or five years, right? This particular show since 2016, and then I had the, the other show for two years before that. So, yeah. So, it's been several years, and, and I'm, I'm really loving Other shows on the network have, you know, shows that talk about fiction, and I try to focus focus specifically on nonfiction, you know, memoirs and, and things That's of great. that nature, because then you can cover a bunch of topics and you can really kind of dive into the the, the nitty gritty of, you know, the, of, of what a book is about. And so that's been really interesting. And I've learned so much by reading these books, 
you know, uh, about topics that I probably never would otherwise have, have learned. I love that you have a, but it's great that you're devoted to that because so many people need to talk about their books. I mean, it's because it's a big accomplishment. It's really hard. Well, you know, I mean, you've written, it's yeah. hard. It's hard to write something and it's so exciting to talk about it uh, publicly. Well, Lois Bromfield came Sorry. in. <laughs> oh, God. I couldn't be more ridiculous. You're so much fun. I think your listeners are going to go, what, what's wrong with you two? <laughs> Just laughing. Oh, I love it. The, the book is entitled My Dirty Life in Comedy. You can buy it on Amazon. Yes. Lois, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's fun to talk to you. For the authors on the Air Global Radio Network, this is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.